Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Let's turn to the book of Romans now this morning. We have done, oh, over the course of the past couple years, we did Mark, and then we went through the book of Acts, and now we're going to go through Romans. Romans chapter 1. And the question I want to ask as we introduce this book is, what in the world is God doing today? Really, though, what's God doing? What's he all about? It's a good question, isn't it? I know you want to know what God's doing. We all do. It's a question many people ask themselves, and it's a question that we need to ask if we are going to think and so live in a way that glorifies God. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we glorify Him. And this is a question, what is God doing today, is a question that we're going to answer as we go through the letter of Romans. It's a letter that many consider to be the greatest epistle in the New Testament. I forgot my clicker up here this morning, if someone wants to grab that for me. Uh, One man said, Romans is the most fundamental, vital, logical, profound, thanks brother, and systematic discussion of the whole plan of salvation in all the literature of the world. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a teacher I've learned a lot from, says this is the first true systematic theology in Romans. That's what we see here. So in Romans, the Apostle Paul clearly and carefully lines out, explains God's redemptive plan. He explains what God is doing through the gospel or the, what we might call the good news. That's what gospel means is good news. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. And he explains it so that we can apply it to our lives and again live for his glory. And Romans is one of those letters where you can basically go as slow as you want. I mean, we could be in Romans for five years if we wanted to. We could take it just a verse or two at a time. And I know men, honestly, who have taught or preached through Romans several times and still feel like they've never plumbed the depths of it. But isn't that the case with the whole Word of God in general? But Romans in particular is just some deep stuff. And the the approach I want to take with the book of Romans is going to be something like a drive through it. I don't want to fly through it. I don't want to walk through it. I kind of want to drive through it. Take a nice Sunday drive, basically. Sunday morning drive. And I'm inviting you to hop in. Sometimes you go too fast and you, you miss a lot of things. 
Sometimes you go so slow through a book that you actually get lost in the details and you forget the big picture. So I think a a nice Sunday drive is going to be a good pace for us. And today we're going to cover the introduction. We're going to cover verses 1 through 17 with the initial greeting, the occasion for writing, and the main theme. And it's from the introduction. This is typical of Paul, is he will introduce in the introduction of the letters that he writes just a taste of what he's going to talk about in the rest of the book. So we're going to get a taste of what's in the rest of the book just in this introduction here. So first let's look at the greeting, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful, wasn't it? But the first thing the Apostle Paul does here is he introduces himself and his calling. And that was typical of ancient writers writing on scrolls to reveal who was writing first. When we write letters to people, we say, Dear so-and-so, we give the message, and then we, we sign it at the end. Well, on a scroll, this was practical, introducing themselves first, writing on a scroll, because you wouldn't have to unroll the whole thing to see who it's from. So you introduce yourself first. It's very practical, and we see that Paul is the author. But we also learn from Romans 16 the last chapter, verse 22, that he used in a, what's called an amanuensis, or you might just think of it as a secretary. Romans 16.22 says that Tertius, Tertius is his name, he actually writes this letter for Paul. So Paul's telling him what to write. Actually, in the end there of the book, in verse 22, he says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. It's kind of funny. I think he just wanted to put a snippet in there, like get his name into the Word of God somehow. Like, hey, it's Tertius, I say hi. You know, (laughs) I don't blame him. I would have done that too. Get my name in the inspired Word of God. But Paul's basically dictating to Tertius what to write. And Paul identifies himself first as a bondservant or slave of Jesus Christ. He viewed himself as a slave to Christ, his master. Basically, he's completely and humbly and totally devoted to Jesus Christ and the calling that Christ has placed on his life. He's a humble guy. He's a, he's a slave, totally devoted to Christ. That's something that we should want for every one of our lives, right? How do you identify yourself? I'm a slave. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we ought to think at times. This uh, term, bond, servant, or slave, is also a term that would also associate him with the Old Testament prophets. 
who were spokesmen for God, like Moses, Moses or Joshua or Elijah. Just like God spoke through the Old Testament prophets, so God speaks through Paul. See, God needed people to reveal his will with the Old Covenant, and now Paul is revealing God's will with the New Covenant. It's a new covenant, which means you have to have a new body of literature. And Paul is God's spokesman, a chosen, appointed apostle to reveal the gospel truth. God has chosen him. And uh, in verse 5, he says that he was graced with the gift of apostleship, you might say. We've received grace and apostleship. You might say God graced him with that gift. It's not something that the Apostle Paul chose for himself. We went through the book of Acts and we read uh, his testimony several times how God uh, stopped him on the Damascus Road. He was not uh, seeking after the Lord Jesus Christ. God just stopped him and in his tracks and that's where everything changed for him. He was graced with the gift of apostleship. Jesus said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake and you're going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. But the fact that he had seen the resurrected Christ on more than one, more than one occasion meant that he was going to be qualified to be an apostle as well. In order to be an apostle, this is why there's no apostles today because they were for a period of time to lay the foundation for the church and you had to be a witness of the resurrection. So you can't be an apostle today. You haven't witnessed the resurrected Christ. It was a special office designated to lay the foundation of the church. And that's exactly what the apostle Paul's going to do in this letter. That's exactly what he's doing through this letter. He's using his gift of apostleship to lay the foundation for the church. It's a letter with that is a foundational letter with foundational gospel doctrine. I love where it's at in our Bibles too. It's like right after the Gospels and then Acts, you see the history and the birth of the church and then boom, you get this big tome of Romans with just the clearest systematic theology in the Bible to ground the church in the truth of the gospel. It's exactly what we need. It's a foundational letter and I think it's even positioned in our Bibles to be foundational. As soon as you see the church born, boom, there's Romans. Get grounded, get established in the doctrine of the gospel. Uh, he also mentions in verse 5 that his apostolic ministry is specifically to the Gentiles. And by Gentiles, he's just talking about non-Jewish people, which is you and me. I don't know if we have any Jews here. But his ministry, though he did minister to the Jews at times, right? To the Jew first, he went into the cities when he was preaching he would then go to the Gentiles because that was his main calling. You see it in verse 5. He is, his calling is to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. In fact, in Romans eleven thirteen, he calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. By God's choice, he's God's point man to the Gentiles. And in verse 6, we see he's calling, God is calling Gentiles to himself through the gospel that Paul preaches. Something else we want to touch on is Paul's use of that phrase, the obedience of faith. I don't know if you caught that. Verse 5, the obedience of faith. Uh, what does he mean by that? There's a lot of discussion in the commentaries related to it, obviously. It comes up in chapter 1 and it comes up in chapter 16 at the very end of the book. 
Uh, what does he mean by this? Is it, is it faith being the basis for obedience? Faith results in obedience? Faith is an act of obedience? I think it's just a wonderful phrase that sums up so much theology at once. What do we have to do to be saved? Well, we have to have faith in Jesus Christ. He says to believe. Jesus says the work of God is that you believe. So you want to obey God? Believe in Jesus Christ. And then obedience should also follow someone who is trusted in Christ. So it's, it's, if we're, it's like two sides of the same coin, faith and obedience. If we're walking in faith, we're going to obey. We're walking in obedience. Our own obedience or works, uh, works or maybe trying to keep the law of Moses aren't going to save us. We can never be good enough. It's, it's trusting in what Jesus did for us. But at the same time, obedience to Christ should characterize any believer operating by faith. And he's going to demonstrate that in, in this letter. One thing to remember as we work through this book of Romans is that Paul was constantly under fire from the Jews. And legalistic teachers who just couldn't let go of the law of Moses. That was the big struggle in Acts, wasn't it? That's what they had the church councils about, meetings about. It's what to do with the law of Moses now that we have the new covenant. What do we do with the old covenant? Well, Paul makes the point in, in, in Romans that we're not under the law anymore. And the obedience that God desires comes from the grace that he gives us through the work of the Spirit of God. A lot of the people were saying that Paul, preaching the new covenant, saying you're not under the law anymore, were saying to people that Paul preaches a lawless gospel. Basically, you can live however you want. Now that you have Jesus Christ, you can live in any way you want. Live in sin. Live it up. But Paul is going to dismiss any such notions in this book, demonstrating faith in Christ brings about a true, grace-motivated, and spirit-driven obedience that he desires. One that the law could never produce. Notice also in verses 2 through 4, Uh, He grounds his apostolic stewardship of the gospel in the Old Testament promises of God. He says this, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David. The Legacy Standard Bible translates that more literally, born according to the seed of David. And I appreciate that translation, seed, Because when you hear that word seed, if you're a student of the Old Testament, your mind should go back to different covenants that God made, like the covenant with David, where he promised that one of David's seed or descendants would inherit the promises. And it goes back to Genesis 3.15 in the Garden of Eden. It's that word seed again. It's the first proclamation of the gospel. The woman would have a, a seed, Christ, right, that would crush Satan's head. So there's a war between God's seed and Satan's seed. And, and God promised a seed, Christ, singular, who would come and crush the devil and redeem man from sin. But Paul's point here is that uh, the gospel he preaches, uh, referencing this, the, the Davidic promise here, it, he's saying that what I preach is not something 
new necessarily. It's not novel. I didn't invent it. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. This is something that God had in the plan all along. This was part of the plan all along. What God has done in Christ, including extending uh, Gentiles and the involvement, it was all part of God's redemptive plan. God has, from eternity past, had a definite plan of redemption that he predicted and that he's currently carrying out. And he's carrying carrying it out today. He's just doing what he promised he said he would do. He's doing what he said he would do. It's also foundational to the gospel to understand that as eternal God, Jesus is the promised root of David. He's the root of David, but he's also the seed of David. So David, it's interesting to think about. David can call him Lord and let, yet that was what they struggled with in the Gospels, right? The Pharisees and Sadducees. David could call Jesus Lord and yet Jesus comes from David's line. So he's both God and man. He's the root of David. He's the seed of David. And, and the, the eternal Godhood of Jesus Christ was demonstrated powerfully, Paul says, through the resurrection. The resurrection asserts that he is God. As a man, however, again, he's the seed of David according to the flesh. Uh, The reference there to the spirit of holiness at the end of verse 4 reminds us that Jesus, though a man, was also sinless. How was he sinless? Well, because he wasn't necessarily one of Adam's descendants. Remember, he was incarnated. He was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. So he didn't inherit the sin nature that Adam was passing on to all of us. And we'll talk about that. But Jesus is both God and both man, but he's the sinless man who can die for our sins, pay for our sins. So he can take our sin and exchange, give us his righteousness. But verse 7 brings up the discussion of audience. Who is Paul writing to? Who's he writing to? He's writing to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. And you might actually just even take out the word as there, as is in italics, telling us that uh, the translators thought that would be helpful to add in there, but I just don't think it's helpful. You could just say called saints. And a saint just means set apart one. He's writing to saints in Rome. Uh, we could call each other saints. If, you're, if you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You've been set apart for God. I could call you Saint Laura. You can call me Saint Justin if you want. You know, it's, We can call each other saints if we want. That's biblically speaking. A saint is not reserved. The title saint is not reserved for the Mother Teresa's out there or the, you know, the Saint Nick's who are dead and canonized and that sort of thing. That's kind of what I grew up with. But I started to read the Bible and I realized biblically, I'm a saint. And that's not arrogant. It's just biblically speaking, God has set you apart for himself. It's a pretty neat thing. Something else significant about the audience is that it's not addressed to the church at Rome. Did you catch that? Usually when Paul writes a letter, he writes to a church somewhere, the church at Ephesus, the church at Colossae, whatever. But here, it's written not to a church, but to all who are beloved of God in Rome. He's writing to all the believers, all the saints in Rome. And that's a little different for Paul's letters. He's not writing, think about this, 
Because when you think of the word Romans, what comes to mind when you think of a church in Rome? You think of a Roman Catholic church. That wasn't even a thing yet. The apostle Peter wasn't even here yet. So he didn't start the church at Rome. That church was not built on Peter, necessarily. So he's just writing to the churches in Rome. Rome's a large city. And there's different synagogues scattered throughout it. And there's different churches scattered throughout it. Little local churches. Gatherings of believers. Not necessarily churches yet at this point, but house churches. Uh, People would gather in different houses. You see this in Romans chapter 16. We'll see it when we get there. But Paul greets the people who meet in Priscilla and Aquila's house in the church in Rome. So he's writing to different churches, plural. He knew some of these individuals, but he did not plant the church. The churches at Rome actually probably got their start from the believers who were at Pentecost, the feast of the Jewish festival of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 says there were Jewish uh, Jews from Rome in Jerusalem when Pentecost happened back in A.D. 33 when the church began with the Spirit's inaugural uh, coming, when he... Uh, did that miraculous work there. But these uh, Jewish believers who were there in Jerusalem during Pentecost got saved, and then they went home not too long later, and they just went back into their synagogues, and they started to tell people, started to tell their Jewish brothers about the Messiah and how Jesus is the Christ, and he's the one we've been waiting for. And and that's kind of just how the churches got started in Rome. Just your everyday people sharing their testimonies about what happened at Pentecost. And so for the first several years, the church was entirely Jewish. And in the next decade, after the revelation given to Peter, Acts chapter 10, uh, year 40, 41, seven, eight years later, uh, a surprise to them was that the Gentiles were getting saved as Gentiles. Gentiles didn't have to convert to Judaism. They were just getting saved. The Spirit was accepting them with, for their faith. Before baptism, before anything. Just by exercising faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, they had a meeting about that and a council about that. And so, several years later, Gentiles start getting saved. Well, in AD 49, Claudius expels all the Jews from Rome. This is, remember, how he met Priscilla, Paul met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. They got kicked out of Rome. And so who's left in Rome, in the Roman churches? Gentiles. And so the church, by the time Paul writes in AD 57, had become predominantly Gentile, especially in Rome. But since then, also, Jews were allowed to come back into Rome by the time Paul writes. And so now you've got a predominantly Gentile church with some Jews mixed in. And there is now, as you can imagine, social tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And disagreements are arising with matters such as, uh, what do we do with the Mosaic Law? Matters relating to the law and and what we have to do to keep that. And which day of the week should we meet? Saturday or Sunday? The Sabbath or Sunday? The Lord's Day? Like, uh, what should we eat? That sort of thing. He's going to deal with those issues. He's also going to deal with the issue of Israel. What about God's program with Israel? Paul's going to discuss that in this book. 
And so that's my first reason I have for, for Paul's writing this this morning. What, the reason Paul writes this is, number one, to resolve the Jewish-Gentile social tension in the churches at Rome by explaining the gospel and explaining what in the world God is doing with Israel. As far as the social tension, we're going to see that the gospel doesn't just save us from sin. I mean, that's first and foremost, right? The gospel. Our ver- the gospel heals, brings restoration to our vertical relationship with God. We need to be restored to him, reconciled to him. And that's numero uno, okay, <laughs> when it comes to the gospel. We need to be saved, period. But there is also a horizontal element. You might think of a cross, Okay, you got the vertical element with God, you got the horizontal element, horizontal element where the gospel then brings healing to man's relationship with other men. So our interpersonal relationships, the gospel teaches us so much about how to love, how to forgive, how to have Christ-centered relationships. And Paul knows that the gospel will bring peace, even this a transforming power of peace between Jew and Gentile. And then again, the question, the early questions we're wrestling with, which is answered in Romans 9 through 11, is what about Israel and the Jewish people? Doesn't God have a covenant with them? And if so, what's he doing? Why are so few Jews getting saved? And why were so many Gentiles getting saved, and so few Jews getting saved. I mean, it just seems like there's nothing happening with Israel. Most people understood, according to prophecy, that when the Messiah came, he would bring great blessing for a repentant national Israel. However, Jesus came, and what did they do? They crucified him. They rejected him. They rejected their own Messiah. They claimed that he was of Beelzebul. That was the unpardonable sin. They rejected their Messiah. They said, we don't want it. And the leaders of Israel convinced the, most of the Jews to, con, to reject him as well. They're sitting there scratching their heads like, I, this didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. So that's the question rolling around in their minds. And a lot of the Jews are like, man, well, Jesus is the Christ. Where's his kingdom? He said he was going to come with a kingdom. It's not here. He, he's, he addresses that here. Paul addresses this issue in length in Romans 9 through 11, and he reveals the mystery of what God's doing with Israel. That's a major reason why he writes this letter. And part of it is just to humble us Gentiles from becoming proud against Israel, to think that, that we've somehow replaced them. And he's going to remind us that, yes, they're under judgment, they've been partially hardened, but. He still has covenant promises with them, and they are still beloved for the sake of their fathers, and he cannot not keep his covenant with them. And if you want, I have an article or a paper that I wrote out there on the Connection Center. You can learn all about that. I've written a paper on the identification of all Israel in Romans 11.26. I encourage you to go pick that up. I printed like 50 copies, and if I need to print more, let me know. But there you have my position on that. But when we, we read this letter, we've got to keep in mind that Paul is writing to this kind of audience, predominantly Jewish, with, uh, predominantly Gentile, with, uh, with a remnant of Jews mixed in. And they're all learning 
this new gospel revelation and how to apply it to their lives uh, since God's program and their minds took an unexpected turn. But secondly, we see the occasion for writing here. Verse 8 through 15 says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, requesting if perhaps now at last by the will of God I will succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I might impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you, also just as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to the uncultured, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And so Paul here continues to warm up his audience. It's a very practical section. He's saying, here's why I'm writing to you. Uh, Establishing report with them. And one of them is that he just wants to uh, visit them. He's been wanting to visit them for a long time. He's been planning to go there for a long time to Rome. He's wanted to preach in Rome. And he's saying, look, uh, I'm sending this letter ahead of time so that you'll receive me favorably in the future should that trip materialize. And it did materialize, didn't it? Uh, through a couple years of jail and appeals to, the, to, the, to Caesar and then a shipwreck in Malta, but he finally got there, and they did receive him well. Uh, He also writes just to thank God for their testimony of their faith. Uh, Their faith was known throughout the whole world. You have to think if there's Christians in Rome in the capital of the world at the time, uh, their testimony, the testimony of their faith had gone throughout the whole world. All roads lead to Rome, right? He also lets them know that he prays continually for them as well. So that's just uh, very practical reasons right there for writing. To let them know he wants to visit them and to use Rome actually as a base for his outreach to the western half of the empire. You have to know at this point in Paul's ministry that he has fully proclaimed the gospel in the eastern half of the Mediterranean, of the empire. You know, from... From Jerusalem, he said, to Illyricum, which is Greece, western Greece. From Greece to, uh, from Albania, Greece, to Jerusalem. The gospel's been proclaimed. There's, there's churches planted, they're thriving, they're growing, they're doing their thing. And now Paul wants to move on. He's looking to new fields. He's got new horizons in mind. So he wants to, one, just go back to Jerusalem real quick at this point in his ministry, deliver the offering that he has for the Jewish church there that's been suffering that we talked about a couple weeks ago, a love offering for the Jewish churches. And then he wants to go to Rome, preach the gospel, and use Rome as a home base, as a base or a launch pad to reach the Western Empire, Western half of the Roman Empire. Uh, Even Spain, he'll specifically mention his desire to go to Spain at the end of the letter. But this is what Paul's doing. He's eager to preach to them. He's obligated to preach to them. He says he's obligated to preach to the wise and the foolish and to the, you know, the, the, the Greek or the, bar, the barbarian. 
basically the cultured, the uncultured, everybody. He, God has called him to preach, and he is obligated to preach. He says, woe to me if I don't preach. Woe to me if I don't. And so he's both eager and obligated to go to Rome to preach the gospel there. And isn't he, what a marvelous example he is for us. You know, Paul has been through so much in his three journeys. He gives us a glimpse of that in, in, in his Corinthian letters. The suffering, the trials, the tribulations, the things that he has been through is unreal. Any other man would have quit <laughs> with what he's been through. But here's the Apostle Paul, having, having gone through three missionary journeys and all the persecution and just the dangers that he was in, and he still wants to keep going. He's still <laughs> pressing on, ex- just excited to, to preach still, even though he knows he could lose his life for it. He's still planting churches in his old age. It's amazing, this guy's faith. And he would give the Lord all the grace, all the praise for that, right? It was through his grace. But he's a good example for us to keep going and growing and stewarding the gifts that God gave us until he comes or until he calls us home. And speaking of spiritual gifts, there is... Uh, a note in here about spiritual gift. He says, I want to come so that I can impart a spiritual gift to you. And what's he talking about there? So in our minds, most of us think of spiritual gifts, teaching and hospitality and those different things. Romans chapter 12, 3 through 6. He'll talk about those gifts. But this gift is actually, this is the only time that spiritual gift is in the singular here in Paul's letters. It's in the singular. He wants to give them a spiritual gift. What's that gift? Well, he he says, he explains it in the next verse. That is basically that I might establish you, encourage you in the faith. So the gift that they would receive is actually the gift of his apostolic ministry to them, establishing them in the gospel. And I think we're going to get through the book of Romans and we're going to look back and think, what a gift the Apostle Paul has given us in this letter. And you're going to feel a lot more established in the gospel. And that's what he wants for them. He says, I want you guys to be established so that you can bear fruit. It's a lot like our vision. He says, I want to reap some fruit from you. Basically, I want to preach the gospel. He's concerned about him reaping fruit, right? Bearing fruit for the glory of God. Then once they're established, once the church at Rome is established in in the gospel, they're going to start to bear fruit. You have to get established in the gospel if we're going to be a fruit-bearing church. So, that's what he's all about there. Let's look at now, lastly, the, the last two verses, verses 16 through 17. We see the main theme here. He says, I, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. These are your memory verses for this book, Okay. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And as is written, the righteous one will live by faith. Those verses right there have sparked revivals. Have, it sparked the Reformation with Martin Luther 500 years ago. And they marked the transition from the introduction of the letter to the body of the letter, and they set the main theme 
for this book that we're going to talk about. And it's the gospel. That's what we're going to talk about. That's the main theme. This is a letter about the gospel, the good news of Christ. Plain and simple. What the gospel is and what it means for our lives. And so... That's his third and main uh, reason for writing, to explain and apply the gospel so that we will glorify God with our lives. It's all, notice verse 5, for his name's sake. That's why we do what we do, for his name's sake. What's our motivation this morning for coming here? What's our motivation for giving? What's our motivation for praying, for preaching, whatever? It's all for him, isn't it? It's all for his glory. That's how we want to live our lives. This is a gospel Paul says, I'm not ashamed about. (laughs) This guy experienced so much pain for preaching the gospel. People didn't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it today, do they? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It's the power of God unto salvation because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's revealed. It's made manifest. The phrase, the righteousness of God, those four words, the righteousness of God, is a phrase that's going to come up occasionally. And it's an important phrase. At times, it's going to refer to God's character. How God is righteous and he demands righteousness of us. Sometimes the righteousness of God is a reference to his saving activities, like uh, Jesus Christ on the cross dying for our sins is a righteous act of God. It's his righteous act. So it's his character, it's his act, but like in this verse where it's linked with salvation and faith, the righteousness of God is going to be a status that he gives to men and women who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gift of righteousness that he gives to everyone who believes. We all know God is righteous, right? We all know God is holy, that he's virtually untouchable, in perfection, blazing holiness that we can't even come close to because we're sinners. We're not righteous. Every day we do things that are not righteous. And that's the barrier that's between us. God's righteous, we're not. Well, the good news is that even though we can never fully keep the law to be righteous, we can never be good enough in ourselves, the good news is that he has come into this world and died for our sins on the cross so that he takes our sin upon him and he imputes his perfect righteousness to us so that we can be declared righteous, justified. There'll be a lot of talk about righteousness and justification, but that's the good news. If you've never heard it before, embrace it this morning with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus died for you because you could never be righteous enough, and he gives you a free gift of righteousness through faith, through trusting in what he did for you on the cross. That's the good news. Salvation and righteousness, the righteousness of God, a free gift. And that's a gift, he says, that's going to give you life. We live by faith. If you want to be saved and you, if you want to live, you want to know what it's like to really live, it's only by faith. He's going to talk a lot about life in this book. 
and how the gospel re- brings healing to our lives. And he says it's, it's from faith to faith there. We're saved by faith. We're sanctified by faith. Quoting the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, he says the righteous are going to live by faith. And again, it's a gift from God that he offers to the Jew and to the Gentile. He's just highlighting there right off the bat. Again, you're getting a snippet of what's going to come in the rest of the book to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And we know he practiced that in his evangelism. He would go to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. But he's also saying that, yes, God still has a special place uh, for the Jewish people in his program. They're still a chosen people for him. He has a special program with the Jews, with Israel. That's not over. But it's also for the Gentile. It's equally for both of us. It's for you and for me. And so to answer our question this morning, what is God doing? He's restoring lives through the gospel. Offering men and women today salvation as a free gift so that we can know him again and live for his, his glory. It's kind of like these cups that we've got out here this morning. That We're going to hand these cups out tomorrow at Uptown on campus as a free gift to the college students. Totally free to them. But... They have to receive it, right? I can offer that as a free gift to those college students all I want, but it has to be received personally by the individuals. And that's the case with the gospel. God offers you the gift of salvation freely, and you have to receive it by faith. And if you haven't, I'd encourage you this morning to just call out to the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. Romans 11 says, uh, or wait, 10 Romans 11, or sorry, Romans 10 says that all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So call out to him in your heart this morning. If you know you're a sinner and you know you need a Savior, he says, call to me and I will save you. Well, let's, let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word this morning, Romans chapter 1. I'm excited to dig into this book and to help help us get established in the gospel, even more established than we've been in the past, Lord. And we pray that this book would, uh, would do its work in our hearts and minds. That as a result of it, we would become more like Jesus and we would bear fruit for you. We would glorify you with our lives. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gift of salvation and his righteousness. It's a righteousness that we don't deserve, but we just come before you praising you for it. You deserve all the glory. And we just commit our study of Romans to you and ask for your blessing on the rest of our time and on the fellowship dinner. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.